Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 18, Negotiations. Part 2. This guy's mountain is a lot higher than your camp, Aaron said with a whine. Do you want to take a break to rest? Susan asked. She was still running on nervous energy. Yeah, uh, just a minute or two. You have longer legs. Our legs are the same length, quipped Susan. Half of your height is leg. Yours are stronger. Whatever. Let me know when you're ready, Susan paced. What if this Douglas guy can't get through to Cheshire? asked Aaron. I mean, you found some medicine, but what if they never find out about it? I don't want to think about that, said Susan. The truth was she had thought about that quite a bit. If she had done everything within her power to help, and yet Margaret still died, would she really be free to return to Cheshire and be with Martin? Would he want her around that soon? How soon is too soon? Would everyone in Cheshire look upon her as an opportunist or a predator? The spiral of such thoughts made Susan's head hurt. Oh, come on, that's enough rest, Susan said impatiently. I'm still tired, whined Aaron. Then pretend like it's ten o'clock at night and you don't want to go to bed. Where's all that youthful energy? At the bottom of this mountain. Get up anyway, chided Susan. Every moment of delay felt like a betrayal. Wow, that's a tall antenna, said Aaron as she looked into the sky. It is. From up here, Doug says his radio can transmit directly 50 or 60 miles. How do you know he's home? Well, I don't. That's why you're going to knock on the door. Me? He's your friend. Why should I? And why are you standing way back there? Just knock on the door. Susan stood off of the small porch beneath the deck, and peered up at the little attic window. After Aaron knocked on the basement door, Susan saw Doug's round face appear in the attic window. She waved. He waved back excitedly, then disappeared. Moments later, the basement door flew open. Oh, thank God you're here, blurted Doug. Perfect timing. Uh, well, actually, half an hour earlier would have been more perfect, uh, but uh, never mind. You're here now. Uh, come on in, come on, come on in. He ushered them in with broad sweeps of his arms. Um, I can't come in, Susan said sheepishly. I just came to tell you that Shively said he can get the medicine. What do you mean you can't come in? Of course you can. You need to come up to my radio room and talk to Baxter while he's still on the air. He's critical for my plan to make connection to Cheshire. He's being all difficult about what he needs to do, but if you were to... Why are you backing up? I just can't go inside, Susan pointed to the open door. It's a long story, uh, but it's kind of a mental health thing. Uh, right, Aaron? Susan gestured with her eyes for Aaron to give Doug some corroboration. Um, yeah, uh, she killed some guys a long time ago, so she freaks out when she goes indoors. Susan winced through a pained smile. That corroboration felt more like sabotage. Ah, oh, dear, said Doug with a thoughtful pause. 
Oh, but that doesn't matter right now. You need to come up and talk to Baxter. He needs to hear it from you. Hear what? Susan asked. I told you what I know. Shively said he found the medicine. The price is five hundred ounces of silver, and meet him on the island north of Vernon in four days. Just send that info to Cheshire. That's what I need Baxter for, said Doug. I need him to set up a repeater on Manadnock, but he won't believe it's to help the folks of Cheshire. He thinks I made that up. You live there. You can set him straight. Doug looked at his watch. No, shoot. I need to get back to my speech. Look, miss, I don't know about no killing of guys, but if you're going to help this Mrs. Simmons to get her medicine, you need to come up to my radio room right quick. Doug turned and rushed back into the house. But, but, stammered Susan. What if I go in first to show that it's okay? offered Aaron. She bounced over the threshold and stood inside, beckoning with her skinny arms. See, it's okay. Come on in. Susan could feel her heart rate speeding up. The day had already been stressful. She felt her resistance to anxiety attacks was low. The open doorway seemed to slowly dilate, wider and narrower. Part of her feared the door like a giant mouth. Part of her feared for Aaron standing in the jaws of the beast. Why did she have to talk on the radio? Doug's answer made no sense. Yet somehow she believed him. Why would he lie about that? Uh, I have to go inside. If I stay out here, uh, Mar Margaret could die, and I would have killed her. Susan's face felt hot suddenly. She swallowed hard, put her head down so that she couldn't see the pulsating doorframe, and charged through the opening with the same linebacker rush she used to topple the maple tree. Her charge ended when she crashed into a heavy chair. Hey, said Aaron. Yeah, you did it. You're inside. Well, that wasn't so bad, now was it? Susan tried to keep her eyes closed. Ignorance should have been bliss, but it wasn't. It's still bad. She just knew that the room was getting smaller, even if she couldn't see it. Slowing down her breathing took concentration. It would do no good to hyperventilate. This way to the stairs, called out Aaron's voice. This way, over here. Opening her eyes for a moment to locate Aaron felt like a necessary evil. As she suspected, the ceiling was descending. The air in the room grew thin. She rushed toward the sound of Aaron's voice, then felt her way up the stairs. Climbing the narrow stairs with her eyes shut was not too difficult. She told herself she was coming up for air from the black water. All would be well. It seemed to help. Traveling up felt better. You made it! cheered Aaron. You're at the top. Now, down this way to the radio stuff. Aaron's voice got fainter as she walked away. Her tennis shoes scuffed along the dusty floorboards. Susan had to open her eyes again. The attic was a dark, man-made tunnel. Stacks of mismatched cardboard boxes formed walls on both sides. Slanted rafters made a low ceiling. The only light came from a small window at the far end of the dark corridor. The little window was too much like the circle of light she saw in Sandy's kitchen. Her breathing sped up. Her hands gripped the top of the stair rail as if she was bracing for a tsunami. The walls of boxes appeared to move closer together. She hadn't noticed it with her eyes shut, but her vision was growing black around the edges. She knew the eyes would be coming soon. Something inside her said the eyes weren't after her, 
Instead, they wanted to delay her, distract her, and ruin her mission. This made Susan angry. Time was precious. She couldn't let the eyes get in her way. Margaret, Martin, depended on her. No, she said out loud. You can't stop me. As she took an unsteady step into the corridor, she noticed two pairs of eyes orbiting in her peripheral vision, in the way that soap bubbles might circle a drain. Her anger settled on the eyes. They were trying to kill Margaret. They were trying to hurt Martin. She wouldn't let them. She gripped the handle of her big knife as it rode in its sheath at her hip, where before she feared getting too close to the eyes, lest they grab her. Now she dared them to come closer. She would catch them and settle the score. Part of her remembered trying to shoot the eyes. Her shot hadn't phased them. Perhaps they were immune to bullets, yet if they could grab her, and she was sure they would, the eyes had to have some substance. She decided she would use her knife. What if she tried to stab the eyes, but actually only hurt Doug or Aaron? Through thin squints, she could see Doug seated at his table and Aaron standing, silhouetted against the small window. Susan's solution was to turn around and back down the corridor. Aaron and Doug would be at her back. She would defend them, too, from the eyes. Yeah, come closer, she growled. She held out her left hand as bait. If the eyes made a move for her hand, she would grab them and pull them closer. The eyes orbited but came no closer to the center of her vision. She took more steps backward. What? Are you cowards? Come on, try something. She wiggled her fingers like worms on a hook to taunt them. The eyes orbited farther out. Eventually, they were so far near the edges that she couldn't be sure if she saw them any longer. The ring of darkness receded too. She had backed close enough to the window that the boxes beside her were lit sufficiently to read the labels. Hey, look at you, beamed Aaron. Uh, you made it. Shush, admonished Doug. I'm on the air. Susan turned to face the bright light of the window. Her breathing was fast and deep, as if she had run a quarter mile. She had no idea how it worked, but somehow light creates oxygen. She relished the feeling of thick, wonderful air flowing through her nostrils. Aaron's unruly hair glowed like a golden corona in the backlight. Doug sat on his backless chair, leaning over the battered table with his microphone. Senator Trichier went on to report how the Economic Empowerment Committee, eager to ensure that all of the nation's citizens were taken care of, has approved an increase in the equity income allowance to 500 shares per person at the next distribution. This action will put more wealth in the hands of our citizens, said Trichier. He went on to say that this wonderful news is matched by the recent decision of the Price Fairness Committee to go after and punish those food producers who have been caught selling their products below the lawfully established prices. Trichia said that this will be a great benefit to his constituents because all it forces food producers to play fair and give all the people what they deserve. Doug flicked a switch. An orange light went out. 
Oh, miss, I'm glad you made it. I told you she would, said Aaron. He didn't believe me, but I told him, she beamed at Susan. What are you doing? Susan pointed at the radio. That sounded like fed propaganda. Oh, that's cause it is, said Doug with a wink. I wrote down this Trichia's speech the other day. It was relayed up from Mass. I figured rebroadcasting their tripe is like doing some sort of public service announcement. It would give me suitable cover for transmitting to Baxter when the townies come sniffing around again. Somebody among the townies is hearing this. I alternate fed propaganda and my own business. Oh, speaking of which, Baxter should be coming back on soon. Doug fiddled with his tuner. The allowance is now five hundred? asked Susan. Having something else to concentrate upon kept the room from spinning. And they're cracking down on two loaf of prices? She shook her head. Well, that just means product prices are still going up. Inflation is getting worse for shares. Well, that's not good news. Yeah, but they tell it like it's great, eh? said Doug. Sugarcoat a turd and call it candy. Uh, okay, it's time. We're encrypted on this frequency, so we can speak freely. We got maybe a minute. Baxter, Baxter, are you there, Baxter? Yeah, I'm here. Why in the hell are you making me wait? I told you no already. Doug covered the mic with his hand. Oh, like I said, Baxter don't believe the medicine is for Cheshire. He and I haven't always seen eye to eye politically. I'm not a pure enough libertarian for him, you see, so he don't quite trust me. Baxter, I got someone here from Cheshire itself to tell you the truth. Doug pushed the microphone into Susan's hands. What am I supposed to say? Susan whispered. Um, uh, hello? She said into the mic. Doug whispered to her. Baxter admires the folks of Cheshire for refusing the fed boot heel and fighting for freedom. Set a good example for other towns out his way. I told him the medicine is for Cheshire, but he won't believe me. He'll believe you. Um, hello, uh, Mr. Baxter? Susan floundered for words to say. The medicine really is for Cheshire, I can assure you. Just your word for it, Y.L. I know the folks in Cheshire. Who's the police chief? Oh, you mean Chief Berg? Susan asked. Yeah. Uh, then what about that tall, skinny guy with the mustache? Who's the chair of the selectmen? Tall and skinny? Susan blinked. Well, that sounds like Mike Wilder. He's a selectman, but Jeff Landers is the chair. He's short and, um, he's not particularly skinny. That's right, he ain't. Susan decided she might try the same game as more of an offense. I hear you're kind of a fan of Cheshire because they stood up for freedom. That's right. Been an inspiration to folks around here. So you probably heard about the two Hendrick brothers and their wood-fired truck doing business with the seacoast? I have. Uh, we're working on one of those two. Mr. Simmons helped build the gasifier for the Hendricks' truck. I lived with the Simmonses. Even helped a little. She recalled putting the head on Tin Man. Ah, you don't say. I do say. So, you see, said Susan, I know Cheshire because I lived there. I know those people, and I know they need that medicine. They really need your help. 
Well, you're asking for a lot of work. I can't go to all this trouble just for some random sick person, even if they are in Cheshire. Susan was about to object when Doug took the microphone out of her hand. Baxter, time's up. I gotta go back to my speeches thing. Meet me back on D frequency in one minute. Excuse me, miss. I gotta continue my propaganda service. Doug cleared his throat. Senator Trichier went on to say how the Senate's Emergency Nutrition Assurance Group has listened to the overwhelming requests from the people and, and approved the addition of power flour to 15 more meal products coming from federally approved factories. Studies by the ENAG show that power flour gives people more energy, keeps them satisfied longer, and is gluten-free and absorbs toxins in the body. People have been demanding that the government approve power flour for use in more foods so the whole population can benefit from this amazing new superfood. Power flour? asked Susan. What the heck is that? I've never heard of it. Doug said, They've been making a big deal out of it lately. Coalition operatives down in Connecticut got a hold of some. It's finely ground sawdust, eh, mostly pine. The feds have been stretching foods with it. What, sawdust has all those health benefits? Heh, eh, of course not, said Doug. Sounds good though, don't it? Right? It's all in how you sell it. They're probably right that it's gluten-free, though. Operatives say plain folks caught fed folks adding wood powder to bread, mashed potato mix and stuff like that. Fed said it was a special additive called power flour. And the people believed that? Oh, seems like it, said Doug. As long as the government says it's like it's good for you, lots of people believe it. I gotta get back on and finish my report. Doug picked up his transcript and leaned over the microphone. Homeland Security Chief Haskell said that she will accept the requests of thousands of brave renovation camp members who beg to be allowed to fight alongside our brave guardsmen. The first assignment for these true patriots is to protect the food processing plant outside of Pittsburgh. As you recall, coalition terrorists crept in last week and detonated high-explosive devices, destroying two-thirds of a Pittsburgh plant. This heinous act has denied life-sustaining food to tens of thousands of mothers and children, further proving that the coalition is made up of heartless criminals. Susan interrupted Doug's recitation. Uh, wait, renovation camps? Those are the re-education camps where they send people the canton leaders don't like. Why would prisoners volunteer to do guard duty? And with what? Leaders aren't going to give those people guns. Doug smiled and shook his head. Oh, they didn't volunteer nothing. They're being shipped down to repair the factory. Sounds better to say that they begged to go. The week before last, feds were bragging about how they were running a natural gas line to the factory to run some big equipment. Then there's a huge explosion. Huh, connect those dots. The feds can't say they screwed up and blew up their own factory, so they blame the coalition terrorists. Uh, oh, but I gotta finish. Uh, hold on. 
The latest news from the front lines is that the loyal guardsmen have resisted ruthless attacks from the coalition thugs, keeping the good people of this nation safe from the terrible atrocities those brutes have always perpetrated. Federal troops skirmished with insurgents at Tridelphia, West Virginia, rescuing women and children before charging on to engage the meager coalition contingent at West Alexander. Following that victory, federal soldiers pressed on to the outskirts of Clayville. Haskell wanted all citizens to know how their safety is the government's highest priority. That concludes this week's federal report. Federal troops are taking coalition territory? asked Susan. Well, that's bad. Doug flipped the switch and turned to a new frequency. Sure sounded like it, eh? I got curious and looked it up on a map. They were bravely charging backward. Clayville is about ten miles east of Triadelphia. The Fed troops were retreating. Huh, now, I gotta get Baxter back. CQ, Baxter, you still there? Better be. Yeah, still here. Like I said, hauling my portable gear all the way up that mountain and then leaving my son staying up there for two days, that's asking a heck of a lot for just one sick person. Susan took the microphone. Hi, uh, Mr. Baxter. Uh, this is Susan again. Uh, this isn't just for some random sick person. This is for Mrs. Simmons. I've personally seen how she used her knowledge of nutrition, creative cooking, and food preservation to turn the town farm from a, a sad daycare for poor people to a food producer for Cheshire. Heard about your town farm? Yeah, we set one up here, too. This spring and summer will be important for growing crops. It's someone like Mrs. Simmons who will have the expertise to turn those crops into food storage and get everyone through the next winter. If you want your people and the people of New Hampshire to have food independence and the freedom to refuse the federal carrot and huge stick, we need people like Mrs. Simmons. Susan felt her face get hot. Her last burst of words felt like over-the-top pep rally fodder. She wasn't sure where all those words came from. All she wanted to do was convince Baxter to set up his repeater, yet it sounded more like saving the free world. She was embarrassed at her temerity. Oh, nice touch about food freedom, chuckled Doug quietly as he covered the microphone with his hand. <laughs> Federal carrot. Oh, that was perfect. Baxter's always hopping on cats and sticks. All right, all right. I don't want to give the feds any kind of a victory, even a backdoor victory. I'll send my boy up tomorrow morning with my mobile rig and a simplex repeater. Assume he'll be set up at noon, but I'm keeping him up there only until the day after that. Come 1 p.m., he's coming back down. I can't spare him any longer than that. Five by five, Baxter, said Doug. Noon tomorrow. Noon the next day. Susan pulled the microphone near. Uh, thank you, Mr. Baxter. There you have part two. It was kind of interesting to rehear my bits about Fed propaganda, given the current events in the Middle East. Wartime propaganda has been pretty predictable for a long time. It has been typical since even before World War I, 
that conflict zones only seem to have been populated with women and children. They seem to be the only ones hurt by the enemy. Heck, even before World War I, in the Boer War, at the turn of the 1900s, the British accused the Boers of atrocities, and the Boers accused the British of abusing women and children. Women and children has become one of those phrases that raise my skeptical eyebrow. The explosion at the Gaza hospital reminded me of the sinking of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor in 1898. Back then, early investigations suggested that it was an accident, an internal fire that detonated stored gunpowder. Despite that, some in the government and the yellow journalism of the day preferred to blame it on a Spanish mine. The Spanish were abusing women and children in Cuba, after all. Remember the Maine became a rallying cry for the U.S. in the Spanish-American War. The actual cause of the sinking was debated for decades, though the accident theory has prevailed since the 1970s. Nowadays, with social media, cameras everywhere, and the Internet to record everything, it's a lot harder to take an event and gin it up into an enemy atrocity. Historically, the truth seldom comes out, even years later, as both sides are keen to keep their image polished and the image of their enemies tarnished. Yet, as really old as such propaganda tactics are, and how quick the Internet can provide contrary facts, it's surprising how little audiences have changed and are prone to accept the spin with little question. But, back in the grid-down world of the siege stories, such Internet fact-checking was no longer available. The government could spin their own mistakes into enemy terrorist action, and few would have any way of knowing the truth. If we ever do find ourselves in a grid-down world, expect the old art of propaganda to make a strong comeback. In podcast news, the ad revenue continues to go down. That is, if it ever gets paid out at all. I think most listeners have settled on skipping the ads, which I totally understand. I tend to do that myself. Well, not to myself. When I listen to an episode to check the quality, I listen to all of the ads. Of course, that's also to keep tabs on what kind of ads Podbean is putting in there. I'd like to give a shout-out to Todd and Lady of the Lake for buying me virtual coffees this past week. Thanks, guys. I do appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.